tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Where I am, winter has descended. It's not even December. Oh. They didn't give us much but, warning, did they? No, they didn't. They didn't. And, and uh, oh, well. <laughs> am I complaining? Yes. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can preach a good game, but, well, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, that said... Let us jump into the great pool of Bible by opening the big book on the coffee table. It's a heated right, pool, though, right? It's a heated pool. Not where I am. Good Lord. It's, it really is. It's amazing. Nine at November. I don't remember November where it was nine above. But I'm, again, let's get to more pleasant topics. The vision of, of Daniel, uh, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> I do not want to discuss this because I don't understand it. Now, the best, one of the best uh, explanations of it I've ever heard is uh, from the truly brilliant Dr. Scott Hahn. Um, he's got a good analysis of it. And in this vision in Daniel, the second chapter, the 31st verse and following, uh, Daniel has, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a, a vision and uh, um or as we heard yesterday, his friends who called him Kururu. Um, the, uh, he had this vision, and none of his, none of his magicians and interpreters could explain it. And uh, there was somebody who was skilled at the interpretation of dreams, and that was Daniel the Hebrew. So um, then he came, and uh, he explained. He, he, it was a bit of a trick, actually, in this, because in the vision originally, um, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the king says, uh, I had a dream. This is in the third verse of the chapter. I had a dream, which will allow my spirit no rest until I know the answers. <laughs> and the, 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 the magician said, uh, Oh, King live forever. Tell the servants your dream. We will give it this meaning. And this is what I've decided, said the king. Tell me the dream and its meaning. 
or you shall be cut to pieces and your house is made a refuge heap. You know, this is a great line because, well, if you're really uh, clairvoyants and magicians and sages, you tell me my dream and then interpret it. And uh, uh, the they couldn't do it. And I love that. You know, if you go to a fortune teller and they charge money, they can't be a very good fortune teller. If they had the gift of of seeing into the future. They just put some money in the stock market or go down to the racetrack and ply their craft for free. They can't tell the future or they wouldn't be charging. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. You tell me the dream. So they bring in Daniel. Well, let's let's see. Let me go back to that. I want to get to the part where they bring in Daniel because it's, it's fairly dramatic. Um, uh, 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 let's see. So Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. and said, don't put the wise men of Babylon to death. Bring me before the king and I'll tell him the interpretation of the dream. So Arioch, who, uh, um, uh, um, well, well actually he kind of had a vision in the night and God told him the dream. And so then he said, bring me to the king and spare the, the you know, he's being merciful to these people who are not his friends. Uh, he's, he's interceding for them. So the king asked Daniel, um, this is uh, uh, Belshazzar. Oh, good grief, good grief. Good Every grief. time a phone rings, uh, an angel gets its wings, but I don't think necessarily that's true. All right, moving along here. Look, Daddy, um, teacher says every time a phone rings, an angel gets his well, every time my phone rings, I feel like an absolute idiot for forgetting to turn it off before the show. All right, moving along here. Uh, Daniel went to Arioch, and he said, don't kill them all. I'll interpret the dream. And so they they uh, brought him in to uh, uh, the king, and uh, he, he tells him his vision, that that um, it, the vision is you saw a statue its head was gold, its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs were bronze, its legs iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. And this is a bunch of empires. And then a great rock comes from a mountain and just smashes the statue, and that re- represents an empire that will endure forever. So uh, um, people have tried to identify the, the kingdom uh, um, uh, forever and and people there have been different interpretations and of course revisionists say well there's no such thing as as prophecy so therefore this must have been written after the fact and i remember what i have told you which i think is excuse me i think is true that um uh the um uh uh those prophecies, you don't understand a prophecy until it happens. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I'm going to pull it up. I have told you these things now. Okay, here we go. Um, okay, let me just hit the little button. John 16, 4. Uh, that's the Christian or the, the, the truly biblical understanding of, of the prediction of the future. I have told you this now so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. It is a very dangerous business to look at any kind of prophecy and say, oh, that's what's going to happen. You know, the, that that when when the Lord says something prophetic, it's always kind of oblique and, and kind of 
you know, uh, veiled in secrecy. And then when it happens, you go, oh, that that's what it was. I, I think of uh, the seers of Fatima. Uh, Lucia was in a convent and the Blessed Mother told her that there would be a great sign in the sky before the next and more terrible war was to happen. And uh, the northern lights were seen all the way down, and I think as far as southern Italy and southern southern Spain and Portugal. And when Lucia saw the, the, the northern lights, she said, oh, that's the sign. She didn't, the Blessed Mother didn't say, well, on such and such a day, you're going to see this, and that'll be the sign. So there'll be a sign. And... I think that when we try to to um, kind of squeeze too much out of these prophetic words, we're we're doing the same thing that the world does with divination, you know, that try to tell the future by occult means, and that is any kind of occult uh, investigation is the sin of Adam and Eve. Think about the sin of Adam and Eve. They wanted to know more than God was pleased to tell them. Eve looked at the fruit of the tree and saw that it was good for food and good for the gaining of knowledge. Oh, that's interesting. To to want to know more than God is pleased to tell you uh, um, is is not unlike divination. And, and it is the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, I, I'm a little tough on this, but, you know, I think that to try to... You can theorize on it, fine, but, um, uh, you know, don't go too far. All right, but let us jump ahead to the the gospel. Um, And again, I think this is Dr. Hahn I'm stealing this from. Uh, Again, I have great respect. He is a truly smart cookie. Let me get my other computer going, computer number three here. And um, very interesting that... Jesus says <clears throat> that, you know, I mean, the temple was, was an astonishing building. I mean, really astonishing. It, 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 it was, oh, maybe 12, 13 stories tall, the central shrine of it. The front was supposedly plated in gold. I think that's what Josephus says, it polished so bright that you couldn't look at it in the rising sun. Uh, it, was, it was a building so huge and beautiful that people came from all over the world just to see it, even though they couldn't go into the inner courts. Uh, it was a fantastic building. It was thought to be the most ancient building, most beautiful building in the ancient world by some accounts. And the stones are huge. Uh, Herod built a retaining wall to, to create the platform on which he built all the, the government buildings and the, the religious buildings. And, you know, it was the size of 10 football fields. It was huge. And these stones you can't imagine how large they are, how many tons they are. And the engineering feat of getting those stones into position, it just was utterly astonishing. So there you go. You got this glorious building and Jesus, uh, they're saying, oh, look at these beautiful stones in the votive offerings. You'd give gold to the temple. Uh, There was a grapevine around the door into the inner shrine, uh, the holy place that had leaves and grapes of gold, but the grapes were the size of oranges, if not larger. Uh, people would, would donate huge amounts to the temple. And uh, this was just magnificent, these huge stones in this, this, this building. All that you see here, the days will come when there will not be left a stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. And that's exactly what happened. There is, at this point in history... 
Not a single stone, as far as we know, left of the of the the the, the inner shrine of the temple. You know, it was you had the outer walls, the the retaining walls, and then you had the courts where everybody could go. But then you had the sacred precinct, and there is not one stone left upon a stone. We do have the stone inscriptions warning people that if they were not in the covenant of the Jews, if they went past this point, uh, you couldn't, they wouldn't be responsible for your life. It was in, in Hebrew and in, uh, well, Aramaic, I imagine, and Greek and Latin. Though I think two of those exist still and are in different museums in different places. That happened in seven, well, in 70 AD when, when uh, Vespasian and his son Titus uh, destroyed the temple after one of the revolts of, of the Jewish people. So <clears throat> that happened. That's what they're asking. Teacher, when will this happen, this throwing down of things? And what sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? See that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time has come. You'll hear it's of wars and insurrections, but such things must happen worse, but it will not immediately be the end. He's talking about the end of the temple. That's pretty clear. Not the end of the world. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Well, that happened. There will be powerful earthquakes, famines, and plagues from place to place. You know, the, 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 the real definitive destruction of Jerusalem in 130 A.D., give or take, it might have been 132, uh, was after a person had been declared a false, a false messiah, had been declared messiah by, by a, a rabbi. Um, so, but he says there will be earthquakes, famines, plagues from place to place, and awesome sights and mighty signs will come from the sky. Now, let us look at Flavius Josephus. Okay, I've got to get into this other little computer. Flavius Josephus. If you don't know who Flavius Josephus was, I think you need to know. Josephus was uh, a, a Jewish priest. He was uh, from the priestly class, from a priestly family, and Josephus... Um, Oh, did I just miss Josephus? No. Let me back up here. Okay. Josephus um, uh, was probably born around 37 AD, just after the death and resurrection of the Lord. And he died around 100. But he was um, uh, from a priestly family, and he was one of the generals of uh, the revolution uh, um, in, in 70. But he defected to the Romans, and he was enslaved by... Uh, Vespasian but, and, and Titus, and eventually given his freedom and became a very Roman citizen. And he wrote fascinating things, the histories of the Jews. So in that, in that um, history, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. And there were specific signs that Josephus mentioned in, in his uh, um, histories of the Jews. Uh, glasses again. All right, there we go. Um, Josephus lists eight signs sent by God to warn the Jews. Now, I'm just repeating what he wrote in his, uh, in his history. A star stood over the city like a sword, and it was there for a year. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the, the time of Passover, that is, at 3 a.m., a bright light, as bright as midday, appeared around the altar in the sanctuary, lasting for an hour. Uh, during the same, that same Passover, a cow brought for sacrifice, gave birth to a lamb in the middle of the temple courts. That would be something. At midnight, the eat. Now, this, this to me is, is really 
Interesting. At midnight, the east gate of the inner sanctuary opened of its own accord. This solid bronze gate normally required 20 men to shut it. It was fastened with iron bars secured by bolts. And shortly after the feast, before sunset, there appeared in the sky and the entire country chariots and regiments of soldiers racing through the clouds and surrounding the towns. At the Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, the Feast of, of Shavuot, uh, the priests <coughs> heard a violent movement in the night and a loud crash, then a loud cry of many voices, let us go away, let us let us go hence, let's get out of here. So some spiritual beings seemed to be abandoning the temple. And there was a prophet uh, uh, whose name was Yeshua, Jesus, son of Hananiah, he went around saying, woe, woe to Jerusalem, doom for the city. And they they scourged him with an inch of his life, and he just wouldn't stop. And he was finally killed by a, a flying catapult stone in the siege of Jerusalem. Um, so the point I'm trying to make here is Jesus really predicted the beginning of Jerusalem. And everybody reads this and thinks, oh, this is a prediction of the end of the world. No, it's a prediction of the end of Jerusalem. But to me, the important thing about this is, is our, our trust in God to, to be content to know only what he's told us. Again, John 16, 4, I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but I'm going away. So trust me. I'm not abandoning you. And I think that we need to have that attitude toward uh, prophetic speech. You know, sometimes we, we are as bad as the people who consult uh, astrologers and, and, uh, and clairvoyants and all that, wanting to know A, B, C, D, E. So this vision of Daniel, I'm not sure what it refers to. But the vision of Jerusalem, or the destruction of Jerusalem, I think it really is about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it was fulfilled. And I don't know what relationship it has to end times. It may have a relationship to the end of, of the world, but I don't know. Uh, but if it does, when these things happen, we will understand the meaning. And that said, let us go to a break. We'll come back with letters. And the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. If you have real estate or land you no longer need, consider the advantage of donating it to Relevant Radio. The process is easy. The tax advantages can be huge. Learn more at RelevantRadio.com slash property. you got to accentuate the positive Minute to negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum. Bring gloom down to the minimum. I should Have play this song constantly. Oh, wasn't so subtle, was it? No, it wasn't so subtle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good grief. Doing this show cheers me up, frankly. I love to jump into the deep end of the biblical pool. So that said, let us go to two letters. Okay, let's see here. This is a letter from Lisa. 
She has a question about the celebration of the scrutinies. That was the then scrutinies. The uh, the scrutinies are the uh, the part of the step of people coming into the church uh, at the Sunday mass. They are asked about their faith. Uh, you know, they're asked uh, questions. If I recall from the creed, it's been a while since I've done this. But uh, well, during the celebration of each of the three scrutinies, in the go- is the gospel to be read only by the deacon or priest, or may the gospel be read by multiple lay readers, each taking the part of a specific character. The Samaritan woman at the well, the man blind from birth and Lazarus, after attending Mass with the gospel read by multiple readers, I asked the deacon that question. He stated that it was allowed. As I understand, the narrative of the Lord's Passion is the only reading which is allowed to be read in parts. Um, yeah, Lisa, as far as I know, that's true. Um, things change, and uh, if anyone is listening who knows it definitively, the gospel is to be read by the deacon or the priest or, of course, by a bishop if necessary. Um, <clears throat> I don't believe, outside of the, the reading of the Passion, that that, that is done. Uh, because, you see, it's it's part of... It's, part, it's, it's not just... Uh, the first part of... The, the Mass is not simply an instructional prayer meeting. It's not just the lecture period of Mass. Though we are edified and instructed by it, the reading of the Scripture is, is an authentic part of worship. To repeat the Lord's, Lord, the Lord's words is, is part of worship. So uh, that, that hierarchical sense, I think, uh, applies. Now, if that's been changed in, in canon law, I would love to know, but... That I, I I've never heard of that being kosher. So, Lisa, uh, we're working on it. Okay, let's see here. I've uh, got another one. Oh, by the way, eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. The lines are very open, so do call in. It's kind of funny. The last three minutes, people all call in. Call in now. The lines are quite open, 888-914-9149. Okay, this letter is from, let me make sure that this person doesn't want to remain anonymous, doesn't say so. This is Jan asking about love. She's from Holly, Minnesota. How can I love, oh dear, I probably shouldn't have said that. How can I love more? I know three people are saintly, devout, hardworking, prayerful, and good. All three get on my nerves a lot, each for a different reason. How can I love others who are less perfect? I mean, these are perfect people. What is wrong with me? Why do I see the splinter in their eyes and have uncharitable thoughts about these people all the time? Well, sometimes it's jelly. Yeah, jelly. It's jealousy. Wish it was jelly. Uh, sometimes it's jealousy that, that um, you know, uh, I remember an old cartoon, two monks walking walking around uh, in a cloister saying, one of the monks says to the other, no, no, I really am holier than thou. <laughs> Sometimes we don't like people who are holier than thou, and but I'm the thou. But um, moving along here, how can you love people? By defining love properly, you want to feel good about them. That may not happen. But to love is to will the good of another. That's St. Thomas Aquinas' definition of love, which I repeat constantly to to love is to will the good of another there you go now i don't have to feel it i don't have to like it i just have to feel it love is is often what you do when you don't feel it 
You know, uh, we Americans are such romantics that it's all about how we feel about these things. And that that's not what love is. Love is what we do and our intention to to uh, uh, to to what did I define it as uh, our intention to will their good. Okay. Can you share your favorite Thanksgiving or Christmas recipe with listeners? That's kind of, never been asked that before. I've been asked about cookies. Well, yeah, Linzer Tort is my favorite Christmas recipe. It's very traditional in our family, except we call it Linzer Torten. And um, the other one, Thanksgiving, no festive meal was complete without what we called ancestral beans. Yeah, you boil green beans and chopped onions in a little bit of water. You fry bacon, make a roux with flour, uh, um, deglaze it with vinegar, throw in a bunch of salt and pepper, then put the beans and the onions in there and put it in a casserole, and it's wonderful. That's that's uh, that's sour beans, which are German 19th century food. There, I, I for what it's worth, they really are good. All right, let's see here. Okay. Yeah, I'm... I'm channeling my inner Julia Childs, the voice in my head says. Let's see here. Oh, good grief. Okay. Uh, There's someone here who sent me an article, uh, which I can't open. Remember, if you send me uh, a link uh, on a relevant radio computer, I'm not going to open it because I I don't want to compromise uh, the relevant radio computer system. So I just avoid the problem by not opening them. Uh, and uh, but this is interesting. This is from Teresa, who heard the call on 11:22 regarding no snakes in Malta. Had to check, and apparently there are. Uh, there is one venomous species. I will try and get that on another computer, or even better, Teresa, if you could send the article, you know, duplicated or the, uh, uh, you know, uh, because again, uh, just kind of a general warning. If if you send me a, a link, I, I'm not going to open it. Because, well, I wouldn't want relevant radio to get all higgledy-piggledy computer-wise. So there you go. All right. Now, let's see here. This is, um, uh, let's see here. Where's a good one? Okay. Okay. No, no, let's. Okay. This is, um, oh, I, I think I did translate this. Uh, did I do this already? Oh, good grief. I can't good see the... Good grief. It's, I think it's at the St. Ben... I don't know which medal it is. Um, uh, and again, this is from Leandra, and I I don't think... Uh, oh, there's the text. Oh, I did that one already. It's... it's uh, you sent... Schmerzhaft, uh, which means sorrowful mother. We did that one already. Let's see here. The end is, if we just say thanks to Jesus for his sorrowful passion and never follow through with his full equation of giving, we are closing off the flow of the Holy Spirit that gives us next breath and heartbeat. Um, yeah, it, it's just, you know, you got you to gotta do. I mean, we talk about uh, being saved by faith. Well, I'm always telling you that you can translate the word, the verb believe in the noun faith when you see the text as trust. And... To trust is to do. That's to trust is to do. Um, if we don't, uh, you know, I, I often have shared the the uh, the comparison that if 
If I go to a, a hall where there's a lecture being given and there's one rickety folding chair in the back and I say to myself, I believe that that chair will hold my, my vast clerical dignity um, and I will not fall on the ground, um, I can say I believe that. But I don't really believe it until I put my vast clerical dignity in the rickety chair. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to believe is to do. You know, that, that faith is something that doesn't just happen in our head. It happens in our head, our heart, and our hands and our feet. Faith dictates not just what we think, but what we do. Um, and I think that's real important. All right. That said, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back a little early with the word of the day because I was just terribly impressed by my insight yesterday. So there. I really was. I think it was a real blessing. I don't know who I stole it from, but really was. So 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. Today, we'd like to thank Deborah, who's listening in California for donating her 1986 Volkswagen Jetta. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days like this, Mama said. Mama said, Mama said there'll be days like this, well, Yes, talk about predicting the future. Mamas are good at it. Uh, discussing in the break with the voice in my head, he asked, me, he asked me the most pertinent questions. What was the point of your harangue about the gospel? My point was manifold and manifest and multiformed. No, it, my, it was uh, an important part I did forget to mention, which, oddly enough, I do a lot. But my point is that that we need to understand where prophetic speech, uh, how prophetic speech in in the faith should be taken, that it isn't a way of predicting the future. It's a way of preparing us for the future. And and um, the second point, which probably the more important point, is those revisionists who say, well, there's no such thing as prophecy. Therefore, that gospel where Jesus talked about the end of Jerusalem must have been written after the end of Jerusalem, because how could he have known are you kidding? Three little kids in, in, in Fatima predicted the future with amazing accuracy. Uh, um, sister uh, is in, in Quito, Ecuador, uh, Our Lady of Good Success, uh, Sister, uh, what is it, um, Maria de Jesus Torres, she, she really called the 20th century on the nose in a way that no one could believe would have happened, and it did. Um, so there is prophetic utterance, even though we misuse it sometimes, it's very real. And the only, you know, people who are late daters of the Gospels only do so because of that section in Luke where Jesus says, uh, 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 predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, there is prophetic utterance, and Daniel, that may be history, that's, that, that, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it is precise history. You know, in the writing of history, we put words in people's mouths, but they're rooted in fact uh, in a good history. So, you know, that you can count on the words of Scripture and you can count on the that Jesus really did know the future. Uh, not so much. I, I have an odd theory about that. Jesus worked miracles. 
uh, and knew the future, not because he was the son of God, God from God, light from light, but because he was the new Adam. And Jesus said, I only do what the father tells me that, that the father revealed to Christ's perfect humanity, what he wanted him to know. And Jesus was content to not know things in his perfect humanity, his divinity. He had access to all history, future, past, present, but in his perfect humanity, he was completely dependent on his father. I, I, I say only what the father tells me to. So that said, let us go to the word of the day. The word of the day is kashrut, which means kosher law. And the uh, Jews also talk about halakhic law, which the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, have laws uh, as to how we should walk. Halak is, is to walk in Hebrew. And I've often said to myself, I should write uh, a grand treatise on how all of the 613 laws of the Torah are fulfilled in Christ. Um, Jesus said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So people will say, that means we still can't eat pork. There, there are whole religious groups that say we are bound by the law of Moses. And Jesus clearly said, no, no, it's no longer. Jesus said that very clearly in the scriptures. Now, how are all those dietary laws fulfilled? And you have to understand the purpose of the dietary laws. They were to create a people set apart. If you invite me to your house for dinner and you're serving pork chops and I say, I, I, I can't come to your house for dinner. It's your food is unclean. My food is what? That's really going to create a separation. And that was the point of it. God wanted to set aside a people who he could teach how to be holy. The religions of the ancient world were just practical voodoo. You know, how to curse your neighbor, how to get the gods not to bother you and to give you what, what you want. But God set aside the Hebrew people in order to create a holy people, to bring a, fulf a fulfilled concept of religion into the world, that God wasn't about smiting you and, you know, that sort of thing, though he, he occasionally did smite. God was about loving humanity. He had created us for himself. And unlike the Greek and Roman gods who could have cared less about all this, they didn't care about human beings except to, to fool around and, and make their lives miserable. But God, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, loved humanity. And so God set aside a people and he made sure that they were isolated from their non-Jewish, non-Hebrew neighbors by these dietary laws. That was the purpose of them. They weren't hygienic. They weren't health laws. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned you think pigs are dirty. Have you ever been in a hen house? Chickens are dirty. They're, so uh, that's the point of it, to create a holy people. How is that fulfilled in the New Testament? Well, I give the example of marriage. The old law says thou shalt not commit adultery. And you can obey that law simply by not cheating on your spouse. In the New Testament, St. Paul reminds us that the relationship between man and woman, between husband and wife, is supposed to be one of intimate and complete friendship. So in the New Testament, your spouse is to be your best friend. In the Old Covenant, the 
a wife was just a, a domestic machine that could also a kitchen appliance that could also produce children. You you made a deal with her father. You bought one uh, for the Greeks, the Romans, and even in a certain sense the Hebrews. But uh, in the Christian sense, no, that that husbands love your wives. A Greek would have said, "Why?" But uh, that's how you fulfill that commandment: "Thou shalt not commit adultery." Well, how do you fulfill, how are the dietary laws fulfilled in the New Covenant? We ful- they fulfill them by not eating certain things. We fulfill them by eating, by eating the body, blood, flesh, uh, the body and blood, the humanity and the divinity of the Son of God. We consume that physically as he promised. And so doing, if we do so worthily, and in in a, in a way that we're aware, we we enter into communion. If we eat and drink the body and blood of Christ unworthily and without understanding, we eat and drink to condemnation. Saint Paul says, but the worthy reception, preparation for communion, moral preparation, spiritual preparation, uh, that that creates a, a holy people. And so God is doing through the Eucharist or wants to do through the Eucharist. If we don't abuse the Holy Eucharist through the Eucharist, God is doing in the New Testament in a perfect and a positive way what he did in the Old Testament in a negative and a limited way. So uh, I don't I, I don't know if you understand what I'm driving at, but but this idea of the fulfillment of the law. I remember Rabbi Lefkowitz when I said Jesus said I've come to fulfill the law. The rabbi said, what does that mean? Um, oh, gosh, what time is it? One more story. I remember I was at a Passover dinner at uh, uh, Rabbi Lefkowitz one year, and they had a chazan who really was a strict observer, and he was inhaling matzos. And I asked one of the, the Lefkowitz boys, I said, well, you know, uh, boys, they were in their 30s. I said, what's he doing? I said, well, he's fulfilling the mitzvah. He's fulfilling the commandment. The commandment says we're to eat unleavened bread, but it doesn't say how much. So by eating a lot of it, he's making sure he's fulfilled the commandment. This goal to fulfill the commandment by doing this, it's never going to get there. How do we fulfill that commandment? By eating and drinking the flesh and blood of the Son of God. That's my point. All right. That said, let's go to phones. There is something the matter with your fin. Mike from Albuquerque. What can I do for you? Yes, thank you for taking the call. I, I admire you, I respect you, and I love your show. But well, thank you. I am a, a Protestant. Well, you're welcome. Oh, my. Uh, but, <laughs> oh, my. But, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this, but, Mike, but some of the best Catholics I know are Protestant. But go, go on. <laughs> in any event, um, at, at one point in the New Testament, uh, people come to Jesus in a vast crowd and say, your mother and your family are waiting for you outside. They'd like to see you. And his response yes. uh, to the people that came to get him said, well, this is my mother. This is my family. And and the point yes. I would make here is I view my God as being unlimited. And by praying through Mary or a saint to Jesus, to God, I put a limit on my God, mm, saying, yeah. I need somebody yeah. to step in and take my, my place as I beseech you for my prayer. And I don't yeah. agree with that. So my God well, doesn't have a me... limit. I, I don't need No, of course not. God doesn't have a limit. To my God. 
No, of course not. And I hope you never ask your pastor to pray for you. <laughs> That's the idea. That, I that the, uh, <laughs> Yes, I mean, we really believe very, very deeply in the communion of saints. And, and uh, you know, that, that, that we're a family in heaven, on earth, and even those who are making that transition. That, that the idea of asking people in my family to join me in prayer, I don't think that's non-biblical at all, because they did pray for one another. And the idea that, well, Jesus sounds like he's dissing his mother. You know, that, who's my mother and brother? They're not important. No, he's not saying that. That was put into the text. Uh, and, and that and Jesus, I believe, definitely said it. Because Jesus was making the point that it wasn't his relatives who should run, run the church. In the early days of Christianity, there was a group called the Desposine, which meant the relatives of Jesus. And they would go around saying, we're here now, what's for dinner? I mean, you know, they thought they should run the church. This is a, a Middle Eastern cult, and, and so we're the relatives of the founders, so we'll take up a collection. You know, and Jesus said, no, it's not the blood relationship, it's the spiritual relationship that matters. And he founded an apostolic church. He founded, a, instead of a, a, a kind of monarchical, despotic church that, that, you know, so many religions, you got to be descended from the founder to run things. And that's not the church he established. So, so the, uh, I think those texts were put in, were reminding people that Jesus had said this. I think he loved his mother very much. The last thing he thought of was that beautiful gospel song, Take My Mother Home, uh, that, that he said, son, this is your mother, mother, this is your son. He took care of mom. He loved her very much. And, and the scripture does say all generations will call me blessed. So I think that that idea of the communion of saints is a, it's not praying through or to, it's praying with, asking the intercession of people you know who are in glory and love you. So that's our 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 point and you know but on ultimately we agree that one is saved by grace through faith uh in, in jesus uh and there's no other name by which one can be saved so well mike i'm honored that you listened did that kind of give you the catholic perspective well, on this it, it did and wonderfully and and thank you for your time and your education and i respect your view I, I still uh, will be me, of course, but I, I, I very much appreciate <laughs> your show, and thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's, it's, I'm having fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm real well educated. All right. Thanks, Mike. God bless you. All right. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Bye now. Yeah, honored that you listen. Let's go to Kim, who's calling in from Naperville, Illinois, where I used to go swimming in the old quarry. <laughs> Hi, Father. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, Happy to do so. Um, as uh, as Catholics, are we? Is it okay for us to eat food that is halal? Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, you go to a, a, a good Middle Eastern restaurant, and and uh, and they they brag that the food is both zabia and halal. In other words, it's not a forbidden animal, and and the proper blessings have been said as they slaughter it. It's not food offered to idols, and and you know it just if you were to say, oh, I only eat to be in halal, that might be a problem. But if you go into a restaurant that's good food, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, uh, you're not participating in the in the blessing. In fact, is say grace, say grace before meals in the restaurant, and you'll give it a better blessing. Does that help a little, Kim? Yes, that does. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, this interesting world we live in, interesting times. Let's go to Matt from Havertown, Pennsylvania. Matt, what can I do for you? Hi, Father. I was wondering, so Mary was assumed bodily into heaven. 
And at yes. the apparition to St. Catherine Labouret, she sat on a chair, or I think it was mm-hmm. two hours or so. Is that chair a second-class relic? Because Mary's body and soul were never separated. I would say no, because, you see, visions happen in the spirit, even visions of the Blessed Mother. Uh, for instance, if the Blessed Mother was corporeal in the sense that you and I are corporeal, uh everybody at Fatima would have seen her. What they did see was they saw the, the, the scrub oak tree kind of kind of bend under what appeared to be a weight, and they would see a light, uh, and not everybody saw that. So I think that when you, when you talk about physicality, the physicality is transformed. And I would say it's certainly a second-class relic of St. Catherine Labouret, which is, which is pretty good. But I don't know that we would consider it a second-class relic in the strict sense of the Blessed Mother. Um, uh, on the other hand, I I would think that that it's something to be revered simply because of that vision, and and that was the locus of of the vision. So, you know, if there are wiser heads than mine, I'd love to hear commentary on it. But I I don't know that that would be considered a second-class relic, uh, because you see what happens what happens in a vision. Uh, I suspect is that the veil between heaven and earth becomes rather thin and you see through it, you see the real world. And so the blessed mother could, could appear to uh, Catherine Labore in, in her full being, you know, body and soul without being necessarily physically present in this dimension. Uh, um, I think Roy uh, Shulman's book, Honey from the Rock, talks about his vision converting, and it was much involved with the Blessed Mother. But he described it that way, that the veil had become very thin and he could see the real world all around him. So um, she was seeing the Blessed Mother as the Blessed Mother was. Now, if the Blessed Mother physically entered this dimension, I don't know that that's so. Does that help a little, Matt? It does. It does. I've always been curious about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would, I would treat that chair as a precious relic, but of what class, I don't know. There you go. Thanks for calling in, Mac. God bless you. Let's go to Cindy. You're welcome. Let's go to Cindy from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hi, Father. Um, I got a question. It's not a break the bank sure. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when do we stop kneeling after communion? Because I've seen it all over the place. You know, the priest gets done handing sure. out communion. He sits down. It's there. You know, others mm-hmm. wait until the dishes are washed before before we <laughs> before they sit down. Yeah. People tend to follow what the priest does. But when I converted, I was told that and that's fifty years ago that you stop kneeling once the tabernacle is closed. Well, the the real answer to the question, when do you stop kneeling? At my age, it's when your knees give out. Uh, so, you know, there's no strict rule about it, Cindy. Uh, it's a, a very beautiful custom to stay kneeling and, and, you know, you pay attention until the tabernacles close. That, that I was always taught as a kid, that was a very special moment. But the posture of the body is, is optional. You know, and there are just some people who can't kneel for 15 minutes, like me. Um, but the, uh, um, the attitude of reverence is is more important. In the Eastern churches, they don't kneel. They stand because there are no chairs. <laughs> that would be tough. Uh, now, some Eastern churches do have chairs, uh, but, but their custom, 
which comes from the east, is you stood in the presence of, of the monarch. In the west, we knelt before a monarch. So it's it's these are historical customs that come to us, and you kneel as long as. Uh, as you're prone to. And I, I mean that quite seriously. One shouldn't be expected to kneel if one cannot kneel. So does that answer your question, Cindy? Well, yeah, that wasn't what I was worried about. I mean, somebody, if oh. they got arthritis and they have to sit, that's, that's one sure. thing. But it just seemed like, you know, priests were sitting and kneel, they were sitting and standing at different times, and I didn't know mm-hmm. if there was a specific time when we were supposed not, to. Not really. Where, where not we, really. Okay. One should maintain a certain reverence and, and silence, especially when the tabernacle is open and the Blessed Sacrament is being is being distributed. But, uh, you know, it's, it's there's no hard and fast rule about it. And you'll notice the priest doesn't kneel. He'll genuflect, but he doesn't kneel. And that's not because he's better than everybody else. It just, his his custom goes back to a time in the church before kneeling became the custom. You know, that, that in, the, in the Roman world uh, and in the Greek world, you didn't kneel. In, in front of the emperor, but then that changed and you actually prostrated yourself in front of the emperor or the king. It, it's, it's, you know, the historical period uh, in which these customs started kind of dictates what the custom is. It's a little complex, but I hope that helps, Cindy. God bless. Yeah, no, thank you. You're, okay, let's go to Karen in Chicago. Karen, how can I be of service to you? Hey, Father, it's nice to talk to you. I have a question about um, charities. I gave mm-hmm. to one Catholic um, organization, and all of a sudden, I started oh, getting yes. requests yes. from every organization I had never even heard of. And they yes. send crucifix, they send rosaries. Oh, they send they, things, you, rosaries. Sometimes they send a nickel. Well, save what the rosary or the crucifix and give them to, to, to somebody who might want them, and then throw them out. Okay. To me, that's manipulation. That's bad, you know. I mean, yeah. you can only oh, get yeah. so many. That's what they're going for. Charitable giving. Jesus said one of the sayings of Jesus that didn't make it into the Bible. Apparently, is let your alms sweat in your hand until you know him to whom you give. Now, that's not inspired, but it is good advice. Uh, it's one of the so-called sayings of Jesus. It may be an authentic saying that that wasn't part of the canon of Scripture. It was, I think, in the Gospel of Thomas, which actually has some sayings of Jesus that may be accurate. Well, shouldn't we put them in the Bible? No, because they, they may have, Jesus may or may not have said them, but the Holy Spirit didn't. So what we have in the Scriptures is what the Holy Spirit has said. And But it's still good advice. You know, get to know a charity well. If you know, like, for instance, if you know uh, a local uh, maternity house uh, that's helping women in crisis pregnancies, and you can go there and take a look at the work they're doing, donate. Come visit the Lincolnshire office. You can see what Relevant Radio does. Get to know the charity uh, to which you're donating. So, uh, And getting to know charities to donate to. Drew is coming up, and it's not about, he's not going to send you stuff like that. He's just going to pray with you, and that's pretty good. 